You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another season of Uncommentary, which is no longer going to be seasonal. I'm going to weekly episodes of Uncommentary now with the occasional special episodes. So I hope that you have already subscribed. And if you haven't, this is a great opportunity to do so. My goal, as always, is to drop on Tuesday mornings early enough to where uh, hopefully you can listen on the ride into work if you have a ride into work. If not, that you can listen throughout the day or throughout the week. Uh, I hope to continue a stellar lineup of guests. And because it's a weekly, maybe... Some of the subjects will be uh, more timely and won't feel like they were recorded a month in advance, which, of course, previously they probably would have been. So uh, I hope that this is good news for you. It is uh, good news for me, I believe, and I hope that this will be uh, the thing for the foreseeable future. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Matthew Arbo, and you'll get the, the whole bio Uh, in a moment, but uh, we're talking about the Barman Declaration, and this was a document, a statement produced in 1934 in Germany, 
as a result of the Nazi party and the uh, overly friendliness between uh, the Nazis and a lot of the churches in Germany. Um, Listen especially to the part of the conversation that has to do with uh, power and authority and the role of the church and the state, because uh, I think that's one of the, I think that's the moment that we're in right now. I think we have um, a time in America where we're dealing with um, how much, uh, how much, how closely aligned should Bible-believing evangelical Christians be with the government, with the state, with a political party? Uh, the source of power, we would all say, I think, or most Christians would say, the source of power is uh, God and God alone, and any other power in this world is delegated power. Uh, and I think we would probably most people would be in agreement with that. Uh, but what happens when the church begins to cede its power uh, to the state for uh, relatively short or intermediate or earthly gains of some sort? So we're going to be talking about the Barman Declaration today. Uh, Matt's a great guy, and I hope that you will be encouraged by this. Um, I hope that you'll like this new format that I'm rolling out beginning uh, this early in January. Uh, and I hope that um, that you'll listen and share. Uh, if you haven't yet rated and reviewed Uncommentary in your preferred podcatcher, I hope that you will take some time to do that. Uh, rating it only takes, uh, as you know, uh, putting your thumb on a star, the fifth one, I hope. Uh, and reviewing it takes very little time. And so I hope that if you've been encouraged uh, or blessed or if you've learned anything, then I hope that you'll take a couple of minutes to rate and review so that that will help. We're, we're almost at 100 in uh, ratings in, in the uh, Apple podcasts, and uh, so we could stand some more of those. That'd be helpful. My guest today on Uncommentary is Dr. Matthew Arbo, the Jewel and Joel L. Hewitt Assistant Professor of Theological Studies and Director of Center for Faith and Public Life at Oklahoma Baptist University. His business card is approximately 12 inches long. Uh, Matthew Arbo is the author of Political Vanity, Adam Ferguson on the Moral Tensions of Early Capitalism. We might have to talk about that near the end of the episode, dude. Uh, More recently, Walking Through Infertility, Biblical, Theological, and Moral Counsel for Those Who Are Struggling. That's from Crossway. He's written on a ton of things, been published in top-tier journals, including Political Theology, Studies in Christian Ethics, uh, the Evangelical Review of Society and Politics, He's uh, active in the scholarly community, been a panelist or presenter for conferences at Princeton, Notre Dame, and Tyndall House in Cambridge. That must have been pretty cool. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, but you graduated from Edinburgh, so whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. You've been over there in the <laughs> greens. Mm-hmm. Um, member of the American Academy of Religion, Society of Christian Ethics, and Evangelical Theological Society, and is a research fellow in Christian Ethics for the Ethics and Relig- Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Dr. Matthew Arbo, welcome to Uncommentary. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I read all of the uh, the high-profile stuff that people who are interested in your professional life, you know, would want to know about. Um, what goes on in your personal life? I mean, do you like play Scrabble a lot or what? Uh, <laughs> I, no, not too much. More primitive games than my boys these days. <laughs> um, I've got three young boys, six, four, and nine months. And um, I'm married. Uh, my wife, Ashley, is an attorney. She um, uh, practices mostly nonprofit law, but she's um, cool. I started doing some more stuff here in Oklahoma, um, like small business bills, that kind of thing. Um, so she's kind of doing that part time uh, while the boys are young. 
but we're we're just you know with these young kids we're just kind of holding it down and <laughs> trying to survive keep our the exercise and keep ourselves healthy now is um, that is that I'm home a, is that home for you or you did you grow up in the shadow of the obu chapel no i didn't i'm not uh no in fact um i had never even been to oklahoma honestly till um i started thinking about coming here uh, to teach at obu um, <laughs> i'm from kind of all over the southeast mostly virginia my wife's from nashville okay so this is what brought us out here. Well, we've, it's a friendly place. Oklahoma City is, it really is a really great city. Uh, I was out there a couple of years ago and went through the uh, the memorial there downtown. Yeah. And man, what a moving thing. It's great. Yeah, it's great. Um, it so really uh, I connected with you on Twitter some, I don't know, some months ago. I don't even remember what the subject was that, that we interacted about uh, and started following you because you had good things to say and you weren't just, uh, rousing the rabble. Uh, not that I have any, you know, any, mm-hmm. uh, direct opposition to that. Um, uh, but recently, uh, I mean, you're, you're really thoughtful and, um, informative on ethics and theology and theology and society, uh, and thinking about politics biblically, uh, you're really solid on that stuff. And so recently, I don't remember how this conversation was going. Oh, I do remember uh, Michael Byrd from Australia, who uh, never never is hesitant to have something to say about American politics, uh, said that it might be time for uh, American evangelicals to have their own Barman Declaration. Mm-hmm. And uh, you responded to that in some way. I tagged you or you'd seen it something anyway. So you said something about Barman as well. And um, so I found a place and printed it off. It's obviously too long to read. Uh, but the short is, and I'm going to throw it to you and let you talk, uh, give some background. Uh, this was written uh, on behalf or from, produced by, however the phrase needs to be, the Confessing Church uh, in early Nazi Germany mm-hmm. uh, as a response to what they viewed as, the, the I guess, the, the Lutheran Church uh, becoming too close to uh what we would now obviously say is the evil of the Nazi party. But at that point they would have just, uh, it was that a lot of people viewed it just as a nationalist party that wanted to make Germany great again. Mm-hmm. Um, so set a stage for us, what was going on? What's the context, uh, for the Barman declaration and then walk through it as much as you think you need to. Yeah. Um, so the Barman declaration of 1934 is uh, a pretty short statement. Um, has a distinctive structure, kind of the first four parts um, are talking about the present situation. In fact, the, the original name for the gathering uh, for the declaration was a bit longer. It was called the Theological Declaration, excuse me, Declaration Concerning the Present Situation of the German Evangelical Church. <laughs> um, well, that's not a mouthful. No, no. So the barman became much easier. But the present situation kind of leaps out in that. And it's the, the church, um, as you mentioned, the confessing church um, became concerned about uh, particularly about the church's position toward the state, toward the party, but also the gradual infiltration of the party within within the church. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a twofold concern. Now, the, the, the evangelical church, the German evangelical church is is essentially just like you described. It's a confederation of mostly these three groups, those three denominations, we'll call them, Lutheran, Reformed, and United. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the 30s, beginning really around the Barman Declaration, but certainly as um, thereafter in the, in the coming years into the late 30s, um, it, it more or less divides. And you've got the German Christians who are essentially, in all, in all respects, allegiant to Hitler, 
and the institutions associated with those churches are allegiant to Hitler and to the Reich. And then there's the confessing church, uh, which loses power precipitously over the 30s, um, and particularly the late 30s. And um, But those are the kind of the two segments. When you, say it, that's when, what, you, when you say it loses power, what do you mean? Yeah, they. I mean, they had a voice. Of the, so Barman could mean something early on. I mean, it, it was it was certainly the case that the Nazis had already consolidated a, a tremendous amount of power mm-hmm. uh, by May of 1934. Hitler just to kind of reminds some folks. So Hitler takes power um, after a two year long kind of constitutional struggle um, in January of 1933. There's a little bit more maybe to say about that back history, but um, you know that after the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, Germans felt embarrassed. This is like this is the treaty after World War One. Mm-hmm. Germans felt embarrassed about its provisions. They lost colonies. Later in the twenties, um, there's the global economic um, crisis, mm-hmm. the depression. Germans feel that acutely. It doesn't really relieve at all in the early thirties. And so German, I mean, so put it kind of in perspective. The Nazi Party only got to like two and a half percent of the vote in 1928. Wow. And then by 1930, had gotten almost 18 percent. And two years later, it was like 37 percent. So, I mean, they'd become within just a few years the dominant party, mostly on on promises of rescuing them from their peril and restoring national pride. Mm-hmm. You know, things that sort of nationalist impulses and sentiments that are attractive at, at, to certain people at certain times. But anyway, so Hitler takes power in, in, in 1933 and, the, and they do a really effective job as they already had done at consolidating power and disseminating propaganda. So by, by 34, the confessing church really it still had a voice um, and it had tried to assert this what they call a common voice and mm-hmm. as powerful a way as they can. You, and we'll talk about Bart, his role in uh, Carl Bart, his role in helping draft this. But but not long thereafter, there's there's really nothing that the confessing church can do to press the Nazi party out of the church. Mm. And so the, the divide between German Christians and towards the confessing church just becomes much more pronounced. And the confessing church leadership um, is subject to all sorts of you know, police brutality, to incarceration and torture, to martyrdom, ultimately in some cases. So uh, it's, it's a fraught few years. Mm. Uh, but in 34, um, it's, it's not obvious to some anyway uh, that things will spiral so, so quickly. So, um, so they have this gathering with this, and they issue this re- like really long titled statement that they wisely yeah. abbreviated. Um, yeah. It says, "We confess the following evangelical truths." Now, what's interesting, you mentioned that it's not very long. I mean, it it can fit with a moderate font on a single page, with a yep. huge header. Um, yeah. It's only it's only six articles, um, yeah. and it, you mentioned I think it it has a distinctive uh, structure. So you have a statement and then a, uh, kind of an affirmation and then a rejection mm-hmm. all the way through. Yeah. Um, so kind of break it down to what each of these articles uh, addresses. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm going to uh, kind of move here and there, but the, 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 the most, lots of what you'll find on, online, particularly the statement will be the, th- what it's called the six theses. Mm-hmm. And um, those are the real substance of the barman. The first four the, in the original statement, the first four to eight provisions more or less kind of state what's going on and what they profess to be doing. And what they really want to make clear is that it's not a schismatic document. Okay. Uh, they want to make clear this is a unifying that this is what the the true confessing church must attest to. Okay. So it's it, without it doesn't have to say um, who isn't doing it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't get that specific. It just simply says uh, if if this is something one confesses is what the Christian faith confesses, then 
one is within the Christian faith. That's yeah, where, and, you know. and, and to, so, be, to be a little clear for those who haven't read it before, I mean, this isn't dealing with issues like baptism and security of the believer or no, that's, that, yeah, those that's kinds right. of things. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is this is very much specifically about the position of the church within the state. Yeah, uh, and it's important to remember here with um, because of the context. You know, any of any listeners have had any you know dabbling with Luther and the Lutheran tradition will will know that there's always been a pronounced place for uh, political authority mm-hmm. uh, for the state for the for the regent or whomever, whomever bears that sword. So that's an important kind of underlying. Um, feature of all of this. Uh, that's just very much uh, in, kind of in the blood of uh, German Christian theology. Okay. Um, so that that's kind of that's kind of the background. Um, so that first part, they state, they, they state the present situation, what they what they are and aren't doing, and then you get to those theses, and um, they're structured just like you describe. Uh, it's a kind of team effort. Um, it's in terms of drafting it early on. Uh, Karl Barth, the famous Swiss theologian, is kind of heading up that effort. There's a couple of other uh, German Lutherans that, that assist him, but it's very much a sort of Barthian statement. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's really no way around that. Um, th- and so in that way, it's Christologically focused. That is, Jesus Christ is the sort of centerpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what we want to pay attention to. That's what we want to affirm. And it should never be unclear or ambiguous that this is the object and confession of the church. <laughs> so that's that's there from beginning to end. So what Bart does is, or we'll just say the committee, and then it's ultimately affirmed by this confederation of churches, is uh, in, in each thesis he'll um, articulate a, a scripture passage or two. Mm-hmm. And so like in the first one, it is um, from, they're from John, John 14, and then from John 6, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Uh, the other one is I am the door. And then um, so Bart will say, so then there's an articulation. I'm just giving an example, articulation of what um, the sort of theological, applicable theological principle is. In this case, he thinks it's clear. Jesus Christ, as he is attested in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. Mm-hmm. And so that's the affirmation. And it's important that starts there. We're, af- we're affirming what the Scripture itself attests to about Jesus Christ. And then moves to the rejection, and so in each thesis you get the affirmation, and then the in this next clause, we reject the false doctrine. Is the way it starts the first. Yeah, it's pretty words. in your face, man. No, it is. It's it's very clear. It's very direct. We reject as false doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so I mean, instead of is simply saying heresy that the yeah. church could <laughs> and should recognize as a source of its proclamation beyond and besides this one word of God. Yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God's revelation. Um, and in each, all they have to do is say reject those. And it's kind of put generally, but anyone seeing this, yeah. and I, and it's easy to and go back and recover some. Anyone seeing this would be, it would be obvious then what they're speaking yeah. against. Yeah. Um, and and each each of the theses follow a similar sort of structure and and directness. Each of them also, but then also, also takes a slightly different angle on the nature of the problem. It might be worth kind of revisiting a couple of these at different points, but that's that's essentially how they work. And they're very pointed, um, and they are certainly targeted directly at Nazi efforts to control and co-opt the church. What was the uh, before we drill down into any of them specifically? What happened when this was published? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, the the party uh, uh, knew it was coming uh, naturally, and it had had done preparatory work for it. Um, but I, I think the impression, and again, I'm not, um, I'm, I should say, like, I'm a moral political theologian, and I'm not, uh, you know, 
quite the crisp expert on kind of all the backgrounds and details of Barman. But uh, my understanding is that it was the, that the party was prepared for it. Um, they had done the sort of requisite um, leveraging and um, communication propaganda to, to kind of do what they could to quiet parts of it, to suppress particularly powerful people. But um, I, I think by that point, the power had been so consolidated that it was kind of inevitable that the confessing church wouldn't be able to do much more than simply to say who it was and on, and on what basis it was that, you know, okay. it's just, which is, it is not nothing at all. You know, what it, they decided to do was to make their confession to the Lord Jesus Christ clear, realizing that there would be significant repercussions. Isn't, um, isn't there a sense in which uh, the, in the context, especially uh, that the affirming of Jesus as Lord alone and the church distinct from the state and not under the authority of the state is essentially what was taking place in some of the new Testament books when Jesus was prepared, was declared Lord uh, mm-hmm. at a time when Caesar was kind of the guy with that title. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's definite overlaps. Yeah. You've got some like, kind of delicate differentiations, but nothing all that significant, you know, but absolutely you've got um, a very similar sort of thing going on there. The church having to reckon with how it's going to be prophetic, how it's going to uh, make it the clearest, um, but make the power of its message known um, and what it's going to have to reckon with and what part of, part of what it's saying. And, you know, if you, if you go back to this early message, like some of the like early apologies by Justin and a few others, They'll point. They try, and their letters to point out to the emperor, like, "Look, you know, we're we're like we're here for you. You yeah. know, we pray for you. <laughs> you're misunderstanding. Like, we we of course we we profess this king. Yes, you're right. We we worship this king Jesus, but you know, you need to understand something about what we're doing and what we're what we're not doing. They, the emperors, you know, sometimes listen, sometimes don't. But um, but there's a similar sort of thing going on. Uh, that they're they're not they're not going to compromise who it is they worship. Very good. And that's essentially what the Nazis had been insisting. You're listening to Uncommentary. My guest today is Dr. Matthew Arbo. We'll be back right after this. So what does it take to keep Uncommentary on the air? Uh, Technically, it doesn't cost a lot. Um, There's costs associated with editing. There's costs associated with scheduling. uh, And there's not a lot more. But nobody gets rich off of podcasts that they do from their room and their home. Uh, It's all about getting the content out and uh, doing what people uh, like and maybe even need to hear. So I do want to encourage you to become a Patreon, uh, or at least maybe a one-time gift. Uh, if you go to patreon.com slash uncommentary, you can become a supporter for as little as two bucks a month. I mean, that's like foregoing a 20 ounce Coke one time a month, and you can become a uh, $2 a month contributor supporter level. Uh, if you choose the $3 a month, you'll get a podcast logo, an uncommentary podcast logo. If you choose $5, the gold level, you'll get a mug. And these are actually pretty nice um, mugs. If you choose $10, you'll get a sticker and a mug. Uh, if you go above that, then there's other stuff. I mean, if you've just got like money to spare and you want to give $250 a month, we could really do some upgrades around here. Um, but the reality is it doesn't take a lot. And uh, a little bit helps out a ton and makes it worthwhile. And occasionally, I can take my wife out for a meal. Uh, if you'd rather do a one-time thing, you can use PayPal, paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. That's paypal.me slash uncommentarypod. Or Patreon is monthly. And these are uh, auto drafts, so you don't have to write checks. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go back to the website. Uh, the $2 is gone. The $3 is gone. And really, uh, you never miss it. So that's patreon.com slash uncommentary as well. And now back to this week's episode. Oh, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we're still here with Matthew Arbo. He managed not to go anywhere during the break. Um, 
So I mentioned uh, Michael Bird, uh, Australian theologian, a prolific author, uh, social media presence. And he said America might need its own barman. Uh, what do you think about that? How how does barman apply? What are maybe some of the differentials? Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's uh, Mike Bird's great. Uh, <laughs> his, his Twitter personality is also great. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I get the sentiment. Um, I think there's just enough. Uh, there's a, there's a sufficient amount of differentiation to make it a really difficult thing to pull off. I mean, one one of the practical difficult difficulties is you know as we may have even discussed on Twitter and elsewhere is that um, it's just hard right now to figure out who, what it can, what, what it means to be evangelical yeah. um, and, and what, what is the uniting feature um, or the uniting principles or uniting powers that, uh, that bring evangelicals together. And that's, you know, just a big, big um, political, social, theological question mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. Um, so it'd be really tough to find, to find a way to articulate that. But, um, but, but there's also just some, obvious um contextual differences uh, in terms of what's going on in barman you know what the confessing church is is clearly saying is that we recognize this infiltration and co-option uh project uh it's mostly been achieved by that point of the of the nazi party to control um the church mm-hmm. its practices i mean by this point if bear in mind we're talking about churches that are draping you know the altar with the nazi flag yeah uh, putting copies of Mein Kampf next to the Bible. I mean, we're, we're talking about, um, not, and not just in symbolism, but in practice. Right. Um, and the church was prepared for that. It was a, very much a cultural Christianity in um, many, in many dioceses and many segments of Germany where, you know, if you're just, if you're, if you're German, you're Christian, you know, and there were 60 million people, 20, 20 million were, were uh, Catholic, 40 million were Lutheran. And that's just, you know, that's how you, that's what it was. It, wow. that was just, you're just German, you're Christian. So, um, and levels of piety naturally differ, but um, but the confessing church realized that the church um, in general was was kind of, the, the, the soils were in some sense already prepared for the, the kind of control and co-option. Now, when 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 it's constructing and drafting these statements, it's appealing again first to scripture to the affirmations, and then it's saying what it rejects, mm-hmm. and that's really strong language. It's saying it's it's not just not true; it's heretical. And so on those basis, then, of course, it'll be destructive to the church, it'll impair its witness, it'll render its confession ambiguous, and that's exactly, that's exactly what happens mm-hmm. within the church, as the, particularly churches that uh, are co-opted by the party. Um, now, it won't take that much longer. It's not at this point required, but ministers will have to take a, um, a vow of uh, allegiance wow. to Hitler. Um, ministers? It's worth, it may be worth saying something about this, too. Yeah, yes, I, ministers I, I did not um, know that. One of the most... Okay, so this is later on, and it's kind of commemorate. It, it falls around Hitler's birthday, so it's kind of like meant to be uh, something celebratory, something for him. But um, one of the best places to read about this is in Bonhoeffer's Discipleship. Okay. So in the middle of his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which is there, that center part, substance part of the book, um, in the passage um, where he's commenting on Jesus, uh, that, that section where Jesus is teaching about let your yes be yes and your no be no. In in that section, Bonhoeffer inserts some um, commentary on on vows. What's the difference between an oath and a vow? And he goes sort of articulate this a bit more and says things you know, like, "Well, vows are necessary because there's lies in the world, and and then if you want to, if you're going to take a vow, you have to be aware of entirely what the content of the vow is, um, or the oath is rather, and and what it can't amount to. It's just kind of there in text. What it can't amount to is something like allegiance, because what you cannot do is know what the future will hold. Mm. 
um, you can't say that tomorrow will be like this. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so your allegiance to a political authority um, cannot, be, uh, cannot be primal. Uh, it cannot be above um, or deeper than one's first and really exclusive allegiance to Jesus Christ. Um, in fact, that's the that's the allegiance which calls all other allegiances into question. Yeah. And the, when, the way it appears there, I mean, it's just a, it's a fascinating section. I love discussing that section with students because it just kind of brightens right up. We talk about you know, what what it would look like, say, to what is it? What would Bonhoeffer say, for example, to our pledge of allegiance? Yeah. Uh, to the flag and that that whatever was you know it just gets students talking because it's clearly about allegiances there's a very uh, the, there's a scene in uh, a hidden life i don't know if you've been able to see it yet but, i haven't seen it yet no uh there is a scene that makes it very clear that that's the that's the whole thing for uh, mm. i think his name was franz and i cannot remember that i couldn't pronounce that dude's last name if i had to that's okay um but he he's in the army to begin with he goes to fight he comes home then he gets kind of redrafted or uh, recalled up but in that in that interim, he has come to the conclusion that the war is unjust. Mm. And so he doesn't report, he doesn't report, he doesn't report. Then he finally reports. And there's this really, really powerful scene where he's the only one in this line of soldiers who are swearing an oath to Hitler who refuses to swear the oath. And mm. that begins his imprisonment and ultimately uh, his death sentence. But, uh, but that's what you reminded me of. Yeah, that's a, those have been. Um, he was a military officer, is that right? Uh, well, he was. I can't remember if he was an officer, maybe a sergeant. Certainly not like a lieutenant okay. or a captain or something. I got you. Yeah, it, def, it, it would have it would have been required. Some some ministers were simply allowed not to do it, but they were monitored and watched. That Bonhoeffer was he refused to right. swear the allegiance, uh, and so they're eventually just marginalized, finally policed out or arrested. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what it had come to. I mean, it's the swearing of allegiance, and Bonhoeffer just felt this was it's just fundamentally not possible, uh, on his view, to to swear an allegiance like that, um, which is really which is future oriented, because uh, so much can change. Let, let's just have our allegiances be to Christ Jesus, and then we can settle all the other sorts of commitments that we have mm-hmm. in the right sorts of ways. But um, but that's where things were headed, you know, and the control was was going to be had some way or other, either through material or ideological factors, but. Um, so whether, you know, I kind of come out of that question about, um, whether we need our own, it'd be really, really tough to pull off, but it's, it's pretty clear why, um, Barman has become relevant again. And it's not really so much because of what say our own political authorities are communicating. Not, not so much. It's really, at least within evangelicalism, we'll yeah. say, um, the concern is really with how some, um, evangelicals are responding to the political authority that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and what sorts of um, gestures are being made or overtures, um, public comments, um, particularly certain pretty visible concessions and compromises that are worrying. Uh, that's, I think, what, as at least for me and a few others, causes us to think all over again about Barman um, is because there's still this co-option. Right? Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not nowhere near as sinister, I would think, as uh, I don't think as the as the Nazi co-option and nowhere near as sophisticated. Um, but, but nevertheless, there's, there's certainly a realization, um, within certain parties and certainly within, um, the administration that there's a block, uh, there's an evangelical block, which will be supportive, irrespective in some ways of the, uh, parent of the, of the administration, the president's, mm-hmm. um, behavior or, um, less tasteful, let's mm-hmm. say, and, and sometimes even, um, wrong, yeah. uh, public speech, um, and that these are kind of accepted because there are some things that, 
and their policies being pursued by the president's administration, which are desirable. Um, and you know, the, the way those rationales are built up are, are usually pretty feeble. I mean, you know, the, the primary one being, well, you know, we don't, we don't elect, um, a moral exemplar. Yeah. We, you uh, know, we're not well, of, a of course, I would, you know, we, yeah, I mean, yeah. I know I, we, I would just take, um, somebody who doesn't, you know, make fun of people or, yeah. um, you know, so, you, so let me, so in the, in the break, we were kind of talking about, um, delineation or distinction between, uh, our current climate and the, yeah. the Barman climate. And I do think it's important. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I don't view this administration or president Trump as like this embodiment of evil in the same mm-hmm. way that, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the guys of the past. I mean, it's, it's ultimately, I think it's counterproductive and you know, historically inaccurate to go to mm-hmm. that kind of weird length. It's just, yeah, it's just so. way out there. Um, the, I think what, at least from my perspective, we're, we're in a situation mm-hmm. where, um, evangelicals who had been basically held together politically by the right to life, uh, abortion position. This mm-hmm. is, this is mm-hmm. my observation anyway. Yeah. Um, as a, you know, as a longtime Southern Baptist in evangelical life for all these years, Mm-hmm. And politically aware, you know, since for thirty plus years now, mm-hmm. that's always been the that's always been the call. That's always been the goal. Yeah. The one issue is not tax cuts. The one issue is abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the one that's always been the rallying cry. Get the judges, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have a situation, I think, where more and more evangelicals are taking what I would what I would term a more theologically holistic view of the political world. Mm-hmm. Uh, to where they're like, okay, yes, abortion is wrong. Abortion on demand is terrible, and we need to reduce it or eliminate it if we can. But mm-hmm. while that's still in process, there's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other stuff that yes. we could be paying attention to. And yep. so you've got, uh, and if if we just use the percentages of people who are going to uh, have already said that they're going to vote or have continued support for the president, then mm-hmm. you've got some 70 plus percent of evangelicals who would still be what I would term in that one issue group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got this 25% maybe of these others who are, uh, okay, well, we also oppose abortion on demand. And, but we also think that there's something to look at in refugees and immigration and, um, can, you know, capital punishment and, sentencing inequalities and all these kinds of things that also the scripture seems to have something to say about, but we're not saying anything about them and we're not hearing good messaging from the white house on some of these things. So we're not, we don't think that he is the guy to get us where, you know, get things where they need to be. Mm -hmm. And so he being the president far from being the embodiment of total evil, Mm -hmm. uh, far from that, is kind of a lightning rod, uh, a divide, a division causer um, bet- inside of evangelicalism. So now we've mm-hmm. got. Uh, I'm imagining now the confessing church. You know, you got mm-hmm. Bart on one side of the argument and Bonhoeffer on the other side of the argument, and Nam Muller on the other side. Of, you know, you say so mm-hmm. it would be a, a division within the confessing church mm-hmm. uh, is kind of analogous to what we're seeing today. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at Barman. This is, I mean, I call them articles. I don't know what the right terminology is, but Article Five. Fear God, honor the emperor from first Peter. Uh, Mm -hmm. Scripture tells us that in the as yet unredeemed world in which the church also exists, the state has by divine appointment the task of providing justice and peace. It fulfills this task by means of threat and exercise of force. 
It goes mm-hmm. on to describe the state's responsibility and the church's responsibility. And we reject mm-hmm. the false doctrines as though the state, over and beyond its special commission, should and could mm-hmm. become the single and totalitarian order of human life and thus fulfilling the church's vocation as well. Uh, mm-hmm. And then there's more. But I think what the, some of the people in the 20 to 25% are frustrated about is that there is the effect of the state having authority over the church, not mm-hmm. legally, but mm-hmm. influentially. So mm-hmm. that when people hear the word evangelical or they hear the term Christian, it's this political description mm-hmm. now rather than mm-hmm. any kind of theological unity that helps mm-hmm. us think about how to think about politics. Is I mean, would another barman help that or do we just need to like, hey, guys, read Article 5? <laughs> maybe. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it, it's hard. It's really hard to know. I mean, um, I, I think everything you say is uh, that, that last part particularly is right, um, that you know an article it's, that's apt that you appeal to article five there um particularly about the there's relationship between the church and the state yeah there's definitely i'll go back to that first point there's there's definitely been a um maturation in the in, in, generally speaking mm-hmm. in evangelicals's perspective on a pro-life position uh you'll now very regularly see things like to be pro-life is to be um, is to confront and relieve poverty. Yeah. To be pro-life is to could even be to oppose capital punishment. Uh, it, it could be any any number of ways that right. it's expressed. Uh, it could be to oppose uh, belligerence towards immigrants. It could it could the, the, all sorts of examples. And that means it's, it's there's a willingness now to be much more holistic to say all all human beings created in the image of God uh, are uh, bearers of the image are, are bear equal dignity uh, and deserve respect and care. And that's something that, generally speaking, evangelicals will um, affirm. I don't know if they'll affirm it, some of the specifics like that, right? They might not say that, that capital punishment is a pro-life issue. But um, there's certainly a willingness to, to take on the more holistic, the, the holistic, more holistic commitment. And um, there's, probably, there's probably some very interesting ways to explain how that happened. Um, but there's also certain segments that do not, um, either do not want to, um, accept that more holistic picture or have a vested interest in it not being, um, mm-hmm. more, more widely, um, appreciated and affirmed. And that's, that's sometimes, uh, less clear. Um, so, you know, there was something circulating on Twitter a few days ago that, you know, um, if, if you're pro-life, you, uh, you have to, you just to be pro-life means you have to say, uh, support the president and vote from later this year, you know, which is, um, which is, it's, a, it's an understandable move that an evangelical might it's make. No, you know, no true Scotsman fallacy. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. It's, pl- it's plainly not true. One could try to articulate the reasons for why they think that, but you know, once you begin to do that, there's all these other counter reasons. Right. right? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, that sort of under, undermine those or their contrary evidences. So, um, but there's certainly you're exactly right. There is within the contemporary evangelical moment um, acute divisions, uh, worries certainly on one side about the politicization of evangelicalism, at least the, the way it's happening now. It's always been politicized to some degree or other. Uh, but the the way that politicization is is occurring, uh, as pu- the, the way it's public and the, and what particular evangelicals are willing to say aloud mm-hmm. about their relationship to the administration or what they think all evangelicals could do, or even like who they speak for, you mm-hmm. know, uh, that's one of the stranger things about evangelicalism is way there's this kind of unspoken, uh, particularly from, I, I think this is particularly from media class and from inside the beltway and, and other power strongholds. You just sort of assume that 
uh, because someone say presides over an institution within the beltway that they represent somebody. Yeah. You know, uh, but which is just plainly not true. Uh, and, and you have, if you have a much more ecclesial connection, say like the ethics and religious liberty, liberty commission, um, there's a few others that have these more ecclesial connections, but some of them are just simply independent third party. You know, they're mm-hmm. just parachurch organizations. It's not in any, it's not any respect obvious how they speak right. um, <laughs> in any, in any, in any representative way. So, but, the, but, but for the ease of reference, it's certainly easier to think of evangelicals that way, you know, right? that, that, that say one person, Tony Perkins or, or, or uh, Tony Perkins or Ralph Reed or mm-hmm. someone like this, they speak for us and represent us. Well, that's not obviously not true. Um, but it, it but looks good on the cryon though. On, on, uh, exactly. On TV broadcast. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And if you get outside these cities, you find that people believe a whole lot of different sorts of things, you know, um, which has been a, a point of kind of journalistic concern for at least since the election. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly the case that there's generational concerns, there's geographic concerns um, and differences, urban and rural differences, uh, coastal differences. Um, so we, we realize that evangelicalism is, is, is a diverse subset. But you're absolutely right. It's not first a voting bloc. Yeah. And that's exactly how it's being treated. Um, it would but be that's better partially to get our that. fault. It's partially that's our totally, fault for, for right. letting that you're go for right. so long and practically right. promoting ourselves as such. If you want you're the evangelical vote. X, Y, Z. Exactly right. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. Um, and so there is, there is because of um, a, a certain theological thinness uh, at certain times, certain places, um, there is a vulnerability to co-option mm-hmm. uh, where um, the, the substance um, and maybe humility of the Christian life, the simplicity and ordinariness of the Christian life is sort of put aside because we might get something we really want, and that, could, that thing could be really big, mm-hmm. and it could feel really important. Um, but, and it, to be careful, I've written uh, you know a little bit on this. There's a worry about just simply conceding um, fully to a kind of pragmatic consequentialism. Yeah, you know, where we're willing to ju- we're willing to accept a lot. Um, and it looks like we right and right now, the last three or four years, we've been evangelicals have swallowed a lot. Yeah, in order to get some of what uh, it thinks it wants. Um, but that just raised the question about whether these ends we're pursuing, some of which maybe maybe are coming and some of which aren't, really justify all that's being given up to get them. I think one and of the things the that I see, worry. Um, yeah, in in this context, I think one of the things that I'm seeing is a a renewed um, interest in public theology, a renewed desire to define um, the state uh, and the relationship with the state and the church more biblically. Mm-hmm. Um, the, how politics and, and our practice of the Christian faith, uh, relate, um, the, the unique American expression of uh, politics and church and how it differs from other places in the world. Um, mm-hmm. so I think in this moment, um, all of those things are positive steps. I, you know, I'm not God, so I don't know what the mm-hmm. result's going to be, but I mm-hmm. am glad to see uh, people like you and Alan Noble, uh, Alan Cross, others that are consistently in the public arena, which I still think of social media as part of the public arena and and not mm-hmm. an unimportant part of it, mm-hmm. um, articulating well uh, without flamethrowing everybody that mm-hmm. this is this is what the church believes or has believed. This is what scripture holds. And we don't have to abandon it for political mm-hmm. gain short term or long term. Uh, mm-hmm. So if there's nothing else good that's coming out at the moment, at least we're seeing mm-hmm. some more holistic theology espoused publicly 
mm-hmm. for other people to be able to say, okay, well, I need to revisit that, or this is what I thought the Bible said. I'm glad to see somebody else thinks that too, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to this mass of people that we keep hearing about that are leaving our churches because uh, all of a sudden everybody's espousing what they taught them for decades was wrong. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's true. I think um, in in some ways, um, good public theology was slow to respond to social media, um, and in a in a you know, I think healthy way. But uh, but that it's improved some. Um, you know, there's always going to be limits to how much improvements you can get through Twitter. You know, oh, but sure. uh, but um, I think uh, yeah, I'm grateful for those who do that really well. My you know friend and colleague at OBU, you said Alan does that uh, does that really well. Um, and it's, it's really important. I mean, I think, um, just the willingness to speak, to say what you think is true and about, about God and about what God intends for his people mm-hmm. and, uh, what he, uh, the mission that the church receives from him. And I mean, make those sort of fundamental truths clear uh, and first, then I think it helps clarify what it is we're doing as a citizen. And, uh, but that, but that it's never reversed. I mean, that was the big problem at Barman was that. The, these Christians saw themselves as German Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that there was an adjectival qualifier, and that's just not possible. Yeah, it is not possible to put a qualification, an adjectival qualification, of what it means to be Christian. I wouldn't call myself a white Christian. I wouldn't call myself an American Christian. All right, that's just not what I can do. Yeah. I can't say that there's a stipulation on that. In fact, what it means to be Christian calls all of my other identities into question. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, if, if if there's sort of something I I um, I think needs saying often at this point publicly is that this that that is the principal allegiance mm-hmm. and so therefore all the others are called into question um and if, if that's followed i think uh then there there will over time be some political clarification um, and god's always uh, god's providential god's working in history and active in history um and he intends things for his church and the witness of his church um and i think biblically and uh historically the church's prophetic witness, uh, the, its prophetic witness, has been foregrounded. And that, that means that the prophetic part means speaking what's true um, and speaking what God has spoken. You know, that's the prophetic mantle, speaking what God has spoken. And um, that's what Barman, in a sense, tries to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mediating this, this message that here's what God has said and here's what we think it means for our time. And I, I, in a similar sort of way, we can um, ask, you know, what, well, if this is our relation to God, what does it mean, say, when, uh, say, I'm in a service, and they, let's do something like somewhat contested and controversial, like Fourth of July services, mm-hmm. and, uh, and we're um, singing anthems, or we have, you know, military dropping in from, you know, right. sound system right. overhead, <laughs> and that kind of thing, or, you know, tanks going across the screen. I mean, I, I understand why those sorts of things happen, um, but we need to realize what... Um, what's also happening. You know, I mean, I'd say you know, if a church wants to recognize, I'm just using this as an example, of course, but if a church wants to recognize servicemen and women um, honorably, I think the place to do that is outside uh, the worship service. I think the gathered assembly, I mean, look, we have this one hour a week for many churches where we together, without confusion, without qualification, worship the risen Lord. Yeah. And there's just not the that's not the venue for expressing other forms of commit other allegiances, yeah. you know, either to state or to others. So we can honor people just do that outside. That that's the kind of thing I think where the clarity could come. Not just I mean, not just in the gathered service where that 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 that, that clarity should be there. There shouldn't be any ambiguity about what we're doing together right now. 
for Pete's sake. Um, <laughs> but also, and I, we just sort of exercise our own personal conscience and our citizenship. Um, so we could think of things like voting, but we think of it as a disciple. Uh, we think of things like volunteering. And, that, you know, I think um, if that if that happens, we're thinking of ourselves first as a disciple, and then we're imagining our, our citizenship. It's much more holistic. It's not just reduced to voting, which is, uh, you know, I teach undergraduates a lot of times. It feels to them like what it means to be a citizen is to go vote, yeah. uh, which is extremely reductive. And it's really hard for them. I think it's really hard for a lot of folks to get a sense of what it would mean to to be political but not vote, you well, know, or just or to think of it more broadly than voting. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, of what we've been trying to. Yeah, exactly. We've been and exactly right. And it's part of that, you know, the blocking of evangelicalism, the politicization of the church. But but there's actually a lot, lot that, that, that one can do. Um, as a disciple who cares about being civically involved. And usually that will mean a much more local and uh, grassroots sort of activity. That you means are... a lot of inconvenience, you know, and a lot of maybe walking around, a lot of neighborliness. Um, but that's not, you know, maybe that's not as sexy as other forms of civic right. engagement, you know, or as bombastic, but it's the biblical, it's the first biblical one. Um, so I think I, I think that begins to give us a picture. I mean, I think and I mentioned Bonhoeffer. And I think that's a, a decent sort of um, antecedent example you know, of somebody who held to their commitment. And in this case, and in his case, it meant the loss of life you know, as martyrdom. But he wasn't going to let go of that prophetic um, witness that's, that he felt this to be a central part of what he was meant to do as a pastor where he was. You've been listening to Uncommentary with my guest, Matthew Arbo, professor of a lot, a long, long title at. Oklahoma Baptist University, a great thinker. Uh, you're on social media. Where can people find you? Yeah, you can follow me um, on Twitter. I'm not on other social media. I'm on Twitter enough, I think. Yeah. And uh, that's sort of my controlled space. So uh, you can follow me at Matthew B. Arbo. Um, and happy to have new followers. I'll tweet some stuff about football, but <laughs> mostly, mostly, mostly pretty random. I'll also uh, put links to your book uh, in the episode notes for uh, this episode, as well as probably the link to where they can download this Barman. But um, if you want a free, if you just want to see the Barman Declaration online, all you got to do is Google it, and there's a million websites that have it. Uh, but you're able to, for five measly bucks, download a really cool PDF that somebody put together. Uh, it's very attractive, and uh, have a good copy for your your desk or your notebook or whatever. Uh, but until the next time, uh, this is Marty Durham for Uncommentary. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review and whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use. Uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria. This is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.